0: Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City, or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. We're going to be learning in Luke 22 and 23, and it's a longer passage, Uh, this morning, Um, and so what I'm going to have, I'm going to have Megan read that passage in its entirety, and we're going to focus on a particular part of it, but if you guys would open up your Bibles or your apps to Luke 22, starting at verse 63, and follow along as we read.
1: Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will.
0: Thank you. Let's let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning with, with open hands, looking at your scripture. We pray that the scripture would speak to us this morning, Lord, that we can learn something from the trials that you went through. Uh, And and Lord, would your Holy Spirit um, convict us this morning? Lord, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, So Brad asked me to teach on this, and uh, I, I immediately started looking at the passage and realized this is a very long passage. Um, and, and so I was tr- looking and trying to see where exactly, you know, th- th- it's, it's so long, and if we were to go verse by verse, we'd be here for three or four hours, and, and, and it'd be my last time to be able to speak. Um, and so I started looking at the passage, and as I did that, I also looked at uh, what did the other Gospels have to say about this story as well, because all four of them talk about the trials. And all four Gospels focus Really, their focus is the interaction between Jesus and Pilate. And so we're going we're gonna to take this, this huge passage and, and focus more directly on Jesus and Pilate and their interactions with each other. Um, and so uh, at the end of chapter 22, Jesus is uh, with the Jewish religious leaders. And, and what are they trying to do? They actually say in, in, in the end of 22, are you... The Messiah are you the son of God right and what's interesting is and we could do another sermon another day about it but you should go back and look at it that at the end of 22 Jesus says you say I am and he he admits for the first time publicly his divinity publicly I am the son of God and that's actually what's gonna get the religious leaders so up into a a, a fervor and they will say at that point, they should have just killed him, right? Like he's declaring to be God, but they don't kill him. Instead, they, they are going to march him to Pilate, the Roman governor, because they had religious authority, they had moral authority. The, the religious leaders, the, the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council, had religious and moral authority over the Jewish people, but they did not have any political authority. And the only people in Palestine, who could commit execution, capital punishment, were the Romans. And so they're going to take him to the Roman governor in order to get this done. And so this is actually where we have our interaction with Pilate. And, and as a history teacher and someone who wants to always dig into, like, what are the origins of this? Like, this is, Luke barely references Pilate in, in Luke 13, just like once, like Pilate. And that's the only other time we hear about him. And all of a sudden, Jesus is going to be facing the Roman governor. And so we've spent 18 months learning about who Jesus is. I thought we could just take five minutes and who is Pilate? Who is this person that Jesus is going to have this trial with? Um, And so I started looking at some primary resources and and, and kind of nerding into like the who was Pilate. Um, and, And Philo and Josephus both had some really interesting things to say about who Pilate was. Um, is anybody in here fans of The Office? Okay, got a few. The more I read about Pilate from like these Roman historians, Pilate's kind of the Michael Scott of Roman governors. And so if you kind of get my drift, he's enthusiastic, but he just seems to constantly fail at his job. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is Uh, It it, it made me laugh as I was reading about it. So I'd like to just kind of weave a story of who Pilate is before he encounters Jesus. Pilate becomes the fifth governor of Palestine, and he is appointed by Caesar. He is the fifth governor. His headquarters is on the coast, modern-day Tel Aviv, for those of you who who are familiar. And he he gets the job, and and the Roman governor has three jobs. And that is, one, to control the troops, collect taxes— and maintain order and peace. Those are like the three tasks of a governor. And so he's given that task, and he wants to make a big show for his first day. And so what does he do? He's like, my troops, we're going to gather our troops, flags, banners. We're going to march through Jerusalem to let them know who the governor is. And what he doesn't do, or he does do what the previous four governors didn't do, was he placed busts or like images of Caesar on top of all of his flags and banners which was a graven image, and all of a sudden, you have the new governor marching through Jerusalem with idols on top of their flags and banners, and the Jewish people get upset. They're like, don't you know our customs? Don't you know our rules? And for five days, they beg him to take these statues down, and he's too proud. He's like, I'm the governor. I'm not taking these down. And after five days, Pilate caves, and all of a sudden, that sets the tone for Pilate's career as governor of Jerusalem. The crowd chanting and Pilate finally giving in to what the crowd wants. Two other times, the, the historians tell us of two other stories. Uh, once he was wanting to build aqueducts in Jerusalem to get clean water into Jerusalem, which the Roman aqueduct system is fat, fantastic. And if you, if you go to Rome today and, and walk around the streets of Rome, there, are, there is free water that you can just stick your nalgene under that comes from the Roman aqueducts that are still functioning today. Like The aqueduct system by the Romans was cutting-edge technology. And he wants to build some aqueducts in Jerusalem. But he decides to use temple money to pay for it. And the Jews are like, you're stealing from God to build these these public works? And so what happens? The Jews begin to riot again. And this time, Jews are killed in the riots. And Caesar starts hearing word that This guy may not necessarily have everything under control. Uh, A third time, Pilate again showed up into Jerusalem with images of Caesar on shields, marched around Jerusalem. And this time the Jews were like, you know, writing's not really getting anything done. So they sent an ambassador to Rome and rat Pilate out and said, you know, this guy is causing trouble. And so Caesar actually goes to or sends a, a message to Pilate saying, take the shields down Get your house in order. And Pilate basically got told on. <laughs> and it's at this point, Pilate is under constant threat of the Jews reporting to Caesar on him. Great leadership, right? And so that is the context as, as Pi- uh, Jesus and Pilate are having this interaction. It gives us a little bit more of an understanding of who this man is as Jesus and him interact. So, I'd like for us to look at we're going to start in chapter 23 verse 1. Then the whole company of them, that is the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, made up of Pharisees and scribes. The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And again, we already said why they brought him because they they need a political leader to do the dirty work, to do the execution. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Notice the charges are all political, right? He's misleading us. He's telling us not to pay taxes. He's declaring himself to be a king. These are all just political charges because they're trying to rile, pile it up and have him take care of Jesus for them. And Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. It's interesting. Pilate ignores the first two charges completely, right? Like, doesn't even address those. He goes directly to what he thinks, I think, is the biggest one. You're calling yourself a king? Are you a threat to Rome? Are you a threat to me? And and Jesus says, you have said so. Um, And What is so interesting is that that phrase, are you the king of the Jews, and then Jesus' response, the four Gospels, when they tell this story, they varied a lot on, like, context and perspective. But that question and that answer get left in all four Gospels. Exactly. It's like the authors, as they were coming up with, writing out these stories, they all knew that this question and this answer were so valuable that they all left it in. And so, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's, it's a very, I think, a very important question. And why was Pilate asking, are you a king? I think, I believe, Pilate was assuming an earthly kingdom, right? And we've been talking about this in Luke, that people constantly saw Jesus and thought of an earthly kingdom that he was trying to establish. I think it's fair for us to say that about Pilate because we've been talking for weeks about how his followers keep thinking that, right? Like Royce and Brad and Daniel have all talked about how the disciples and his followers were constantly wondering about this earthly kingdom that was coming. Disciples arguing about who would be the greatest, right? Some of his disciples brought swords to the garden when he was getting arrested. Like they had this idea that that Jesus was establishing some type of earthly kingdom. Uh, Even after Jesus' death in Luke 24, the two disciples that were going down the road to Emmaus that encountered Jesus, uh, one of them even stated uh, in 24 he said, we hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. They were lamenting his death, saying we thought he was the one who would redeem Israel. That word redeem literally means, it's not like a, it's not a spiritual, you know, coffee cup word. It was a little remove us from bondage. We thought he would take the chains off of us. They thought he was going to be the one to free them from Rome. And those followers were disappointed walking down the road to Emmaus. So if his disciples are constantly getting confused about the earthly kingdom versus the kingdom of heaven, it's safe to say Pilate does the same thing. And so Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? He says, you have said so. In verse 4, what is his response? Jesus responds, you have said so. And in verse 4, then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. He immediately goes, not guilty. That's where the story should have ended, right? And He should have said, not guilty, have a good day, release Jesus. He made his decision. But he doesn't. But they were urgent, so they respond to his decision. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And At this point, we can kind of see the beginning of Pilate's character. He's looking for a way out. He does not want to confront this crowd. He hears the word Galilee, and he's like, whoa, that's out of my jurisdiction. It's King Herod's. And so he immediately just passes the buck to Herod. Herod, why don't you take care of this? That way the crowd can be mad at Herod and not me. And because of Passover, both Pilate and Herod were in the same city. So it was literally just walking down the street, going to King Herod's palace. And we're not going to dive into what King Herod did, but essentially he he looks at him, he questions him. Jesus doesn't say anything to Herod. And Herod, essentially finding him not guilty, sends him back to Pilate. Um, So let's jump back into verse 13. Pilate then called the chief priests and the rulers and the people. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him, Before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Again, I'm going to just hurt him a little bit. Will that make you happy? And then can we just be done with this? But the people then, again, are persistent. Just like the times when Pilate tried to make decisions and made these blunders, he makes a decision, and he gets pushed back. They cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus a third time. He has said to them, why, what evil has he done? I find no guilt in deserving death. I'll therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent again, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. So what do we do with this? Like, we've read that story before, right? Like, we know the story. You you guys probably have seen the Passion Plays and, and the stories. You know that Jesus went through this trial. How does that apply to us? Like, where are we going to walk away with this morning, learning about this interaction between these two? And I think there's a couple of things that we can take away from this passage. And the first one's real simple. Jesus was found innocent. He's on trial, and Jesus was found innocent. Like, two a king and a governor examine him and find him innocent. Three times, Luke specifically points out that there was no guilt in Jesus. Like he is very clear in his writing. He over and over and over says there is no guilt in this man. Luke is almost like trying to weave us a story going, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Innocent, innocent, innocent. Why? Because he must be innocent, right? He is our sacrifice. The Old Testament in Exodus 12, over the first Passover, God ordered that the Israelites sacrifice a lamb that was innocent without blemish or spot, and that that blood be put over the doors. And what time of, like, what? What week are we in under Jesus' trial? It's Passover. And so Luke is saying, we have an innocent lamb here that is about to be sacrificed. First uh, Peter reinstates this in First Peter. It says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ." like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is the innocent sacrifice. He is the, he is the perfect sacrifice. Um, and, and as I was thinking about this innocent sacrifice, um, last Sunday I, I was gone for a wedding and, and I was driving home from the wedding and I put on Brad's sermon from last week. Um, I don't know if you, have, if you have not listened to Brad's sermon last week, give it a listen. Uh, cup of wrath. It was is a beautiful message, but Brad referenced Braveheart as like one of his favorite movies, and and he was like, "Don't tell me if it's historically inaccurate. It's not really historically accurate." I didn't want to step on Brad too hard, but in Braveheart, uh, one of the things I appreciate about the film, and which, by the way, I know I've hit a certain age when if I reference Braveheart to my high school students, they're like, "I haven't heard of it," and you're like, "Haven't heard of Braveheart?" Like I. Makes me feel really old, really fast. So, uh, but I love the movie Braveheart and the way Mel Gibson directed it, he loved to paint William Wallace as this messianic symbol for the Scots, right? Like if you've seen the movie, he like, especially at the end, really hams up this idea that William Wallace is a savior for Scotland. And the parallels start getting kind of particular, like William Wallace gets betrayed by one of his followers, right? And then he is arrested, and he is questioned, and then he is sentenced to death, and a woman offers him a drink to ease his pain, and he refuses. And then he is stretched out with his arms stretched out, right? And he is tortured and then killed. And, of course, he has that last cry of freedom at the end. And, like, it's real heavy, but Mel Gibson is trying to give us this idea of, like, William Wallace is like Jesus, right? Like, he's a Christ-like symbol the Scots. Oh, and his followers are ashamed, right, in hiding, watching him die. It is a perfect, well, it's, he's trying to make this a perfect parallel. But the more I thought about it, William Wallace wasn't innocent. No one has been found innocent, right? I mean, if we look at the, the movie. He spends the whole movie killing Englishmen, right? Blood is on his hands. Jesus said those who live by the sword die by the sword, right? So, like, he wasn't an innocent sacrifice. Has there been anyone in, I haven't been found innocent. Like, if anybody else was on that table, would we be considered an innocent sacrifice? So, I think the first thing that we can take away from this this morning is that Jesus was that perfect, innocent sacrifice. He was found not guilty by Pilate. And I think the second thing that we can think about this morning is that Pilate chose power over Jesus. Pilate chose power over Jesus. Pilate had the opportunity to release Jesus. Three, four times, found him not guilty, he could have released him. Found him not guilty, he could have released him. Why? Why didn't he? Job security, right? This tension between him and the Jewish leaders. Matthew writes that he even, at one point, the, the Jewish leaders say, if you release him, you are no friend of Caesar. Kind of that idea of like, oh, do we need to go back to Caesar again, right? Like he... He feels that tension between uh, keeping his job, but knowing that this man is innocent. He doesn't see Jesus as a uh, he doesn't see Jesus as a king. He's rather indifferent of him. What I mean, the moment Jesus answered that, he said he was, he says he is a king, and Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate was looking for a political threat. He was looking for a politician, and he looks at Jesus, and he doesn't see a politician. Because what are the characteristics of a politician? Which that question could be dangerous in here, so maybe we shouldn't answer that. But we should ask, like, when we have a politician, what general characteristics? Politicians are self-promoters, right? They have to self-promote themselves. Jesus is humble. Politicians have to be somebody who need and want to obtain power control. That's not Jesus. Like, Pilate does not see a politician. He doesn't see somebody with power. And so for him, he knows he's innocent. But that fear of wanting to keep his job was just enough for him to change his mind. Pilate gave up his character that day. He gave up some of his character. He knew it was right, but he wanted something else instead. I know this is the right thing to do, but my job, I want it just a little bit more. Haven't we all done that? Like, we've all given up just a little bit of our character and moments, little moments. Man, I I know I need to be doing this. Man, it's so much more comfortable over here. Like, maybe there's a family in our church that you could financially help, and maybe the Lord's prompted you to, and you're like, man, but it's just so much easier to live just a little bit more comfortably over here, right? Like, does the Lord prompt you to do something at your work or maybe take a job change? But it's like, oh man. I could get more money and more advancement over here. Like we've all had to like look at ourselves and and at times we've given up just a little bit for something else. The songs we sing here at the church, we we are, when we we figure out what songs we're wanting, we always want to find those songs that like really will speak to us, speak to the church. Um, One of the songs that we taught you guys in June was called Lead Us Back. Um, and, And I love the song, it's a confessional song. That we sing, and one of the things I love about that song is is we, we say this line. We say, power sings a siren's tune. Like, power sounds so good, and it can draw us in. And then the next verse, it says, comfort sings a siren. Comfort, power, popularity. Those things have such a nice draw to them. And at times, don't we just give up a little bit of our character Give up a little bit of what we know the Lord's calling us to do to chase after that. But Pilate wasn't the only one that day who gave chose something else over Jesus. Like we've looked at just Pilate and Jesus, but there is somebody else in the story. Who else turned away from Jesus? The crowd, right? The crowd abandons Jesus in this moment, and this is just a week before the crowd was singing his praises, dropping palm branches down on the ground. Right? This is the same crowd. Why? Like, why would they abandon Jesus six days after they've been singing his praises? And I was reading about it, and and. and People have different speculations, like the, some people think that maybe the crowd was bribed. I mean, they bribed, they gave Judas 30 pieces of silver. Maybe they pe- paid people in the crowd. Some people speculate that it was just that like mob rule that they got to stir up the crowd. Some people even w- w- write about, and it could be that, you know, demonic forces were at play. I think all of those things could be a, a good reason why the crowd so quickly turned against Jesus. Jesus. But as we've been looking at Luke and looking at Luke as this idea that there are these two kingdoms represented, I think I propose that maybe the crowd looked at Jesus, said, he's not going to free us. He's not going to free us from Rome. We celebrated him on Sunday. And they look up and see a man who's been beaten, who holds no power, was not a self promoter. And they're like, he is, how is this a king? How is he going to free us from Rome? And so the people will choose a different politician, Barabbas. He was a politician, he was a revolutionary. He was trying to overthrow Rome with the sword, he was an insurrectionist. He killed some people and he's in prison now for trying to. Uh, to have a political revolution. So the crowd turns to a violent insurrectionist who g- would give them war with Rome over the Prince of Peace. The crowd chose the things of this world more than things above. And Dr. RC Sproul uh, had a, a great quote in his uh, commentary with Mark. He said, "People in the crowd chose the one who they thought could give them political freedom over the one who could give them spiritual freedom." The crowd abandons Jesus. They think he's not going to be the one that can do this. And it's really easy for us to be like, "Oh silly crowd," like I this just killed me this week. Because before we're too hard on the crowd, how often do we look to politics, look to political leaders or political systems, and put our hope in that more than Jesus? I mean, has your person lost an election and then you just felt like this weight of gloom? I have. Right? Have you like had anxiety about things that are happening in politics? I do. I'm a history teacher. I, I teach government. And I'm a news junkie, which is a bad combination. And so I, I am constantly, just constantly eating in all, the, all these stories. And, 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 and sometimes it just becomes overwhelming to me. And sometimes my hope gets off of Jesus and I place it on the things of this world. In fact, about a year ago, I was at breakfast with my friend Michael, and I probably was talking about some story, and I was probably in lots of angst, and he just stopped me and was like, what are you doing? Like, what are you letting consume you? Where is your hope? Man, I had to repent at that moment. And at that moment, go, where's my hope in? You know, this morning, I love the song that Daniel led us this morning, Katie. All our hope is in Jesus. That is something beautiful. Like, all our hope is in Jesus. Remember that. Especially, we have an election coming up, and and, and you're going to have friends and relatives start getting, you know, antsy. And, and, and like, we have to declare and remind ourselves, and I have to. Our hope is in Jesus Nothing on earth. Um, Whether we are wandering because of like political power, or maybe we're chasing after that comfort or that power like Pilate, we have to remember that our heart is bent to do that. Like even after you know, like, yep, I shouldn't put my hope in, in a job or money or politics, like our heart will still always be bent that way. Um, and we have to constantly remind ourselves to focus. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book called The Counterfeit Idols. Highly recommend it. But, but that idea that we, we set up these false idols in religion and in family and in politics and in power and sex that are just shadows of, of who Jesus really is. Um, and, and so because we're bent... Man, that's why we sing songs here. That's why we gather. Like, the hymn, Come Thou Fount. Like, it's our way to declare. Like, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Like, did you feel it this week? Like, did you wander? Like, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I am bent to wander. So, to close, we've looked at Pilate. we looked at Jesus. Um... And as, I love the way Luke writes because this whole story is of an innocent man who will be put to death and a guilty man will be set free. The, 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 the counter of that. Luke paints this picture of the gospel. And if you could just take a minute and, and imagine with me Barabbas, he's in the prison cell, chains on him. He's killed somebody. He's defied Rome. He knows what the punishment is for defying Rome. Death, probably crucifixion, something horrible. And he's probably sitting in that prison cell awaiting his punishment. And outside... I'm picturing the prison to be inside and outside. He hears the muffles of a crowd and he hears the crowd yell, Barabbas, Barabbas. Why are they calling my name? You're right. And then what's the next thing in the crowd chants? Crucify, crucify him. I mean, if I'm Barabbas, right, you, you, all of a sudden you're hearing the crowd ch- for somebody to be crucified thinking my time is up. And Barabbas hears the jailers come in, right? He knows what's happening. He's about to go and t- get on the cross, suffocate, excruciating pain. The jailers take him outside, and they take the chains off of him. And I'm sure he had at that moment, he was like, what's what's happening and he sees a man in chains being hauled away to be crucified and I'm sure he asked and I'm sure somebody said, we freed you and Jesus is going to be killed. We are Barabbas. We, we 100% had the chains on us. We were in the prison cell, on our way to be d- killed, because we were guilty. And it was Jesus who took our place, took our nails, took, suffocated for us. Again, I reference songs all the time, but we sing that song, I am one of those, and that that verse just was over and over and over this morning, I am one of those who was doomed to death in prison. And I've done more evil things that I could say, but Jesus broke inside, unlocked my shackles, and in order to set me free, he died and took my place. The story of Jesus on trial is the gospel story of us who are guilty, deserve death. Jesus took our place.